I will start with the assertive voice. I am a natural born assertive. The f it's fight, flight, make friends. The assertive is the fighter. Flight is the ana analyst. That would be the second voice. That is closer to what many of you have heard of, referred to as the late night FM DJ. And it will have an impact on her brain. And then I'll move to the make friends voice, the accommodator's voice, the friendly smiling voice. The proposition, the hypothesis that we put in front of you guys is that the neuroscience rules are always rules. It has the same type of impact on every single person. The degree of impact varies, but the type of impact is always the same. So we'd ask you to listen for the three voices and see what kind of an impact it has. The first voice will make them combative, the second voice will slow their brain down, and the third voice will pick their brain right back up. I'm a bank robber, bad guy trapped in a bank. You're a hostage negotiator. You don't know how many bad guy bank robbers there are. You don't know how many hostages we have. All you know is that it's your job to talk me out. You and your law enforcement colleagues have the bank surrounded. You have four things you cannot agree to. Yeah. Four things you cannot do. You can't give me any weapons. You can't give me any transportation. You can't give me any drugs or alcohol. And you can't do a hostage exchange of any kind. People are not allowed to come in at all. People only come out. You know, in the movies, Eddie Murphy says, if I come in, you let some people go. You know, you're not going to do that. Right. Got it. We will simulate being over the phone, uh, and then, then we'll start. Questions? So that makes sense. Okay. Um, as far as I can take as much drugs and alcohol as I want. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to pass the test later, probably. <laughs> okay. but. Um, no, I think I think that makes sense. All right. Well, I'm, if you're I'm ready to get crushed, but you're, you're ready sense. to rock. Yeah. Okay. Say ring ring. Okay. Ring ring. I need a car in 60 seconds, or she dies. I'm sorry, I won't be able to do that for you. You want me to kill her right now? I'll kill her right now. I got a lot of hostages. I can throw one out every minute. You got 55 seconds. How many hostages do you have in the bank? Enough to go all day. 55 seconds. And what's your name again? I have no intention of telling you that. Are you an idiot? You've got mm. 50 seconds. Where? How are you going to do it? You're just going to throw her out the door? I'm going to put the gun to her head. I'm going to walk her to the front door. I'm going to cock the trigger so everybody sees that she's about to lose her life. And then I'm going to blow her brains all over the street. Is that specific enough for you? You got 50 seconds. You know we've got the whole bank surrounded, so if you get too close to the oh, door, Oh, that's you're news in to me? Are you in danger 45 of getting seconds. too close to the door? We might, we might be able to pull off a shot. I think you might want to be a little 40 seconds. Hmm. What'd you do this morning? You have... 40 seconds left in this hostage's life. Yeah. So how'd you get into the bank this morning? How do you think? Just walked right in and, and just raised the gun and, and told everybody to go to the back or go to the front. Where'd you, where'd you put everybody? Just like make sure that they're secure. Something like that. Mm hmm Who else is in the bank with you? Or did you come in alone? 
35 seconds. I'm glad your watch is working. Anybody else is in there? yours. How did you pick this person to be number one? Or just, or just a random choice because uh, they're all equal to you? Random choice. Yeah. What do you think about... Uh, what do you think about the bank right now? Is everyone, is everyone? I think I got 30 seconds before there's one less person in this bank. At least. Why'd you pick this bank? It was in a way. 30 seconds. It's a very small bank. 27 seconds. What else we got going on? What else? So what else is going on in... in well, in 25 seconds, what else is going on is either I'm leaving or a hostage is dead. Yeah. Do you think you're leaving? Uh, sorry, one way or another, I'm leaving. You got 20 seconds. Yeah. How might you f go about leaving? What What part of I need a car do you not understand? Well, how are you going to get to the car? You've got 20 seconds. I'm going to walk out the front door. You're going to get out of the way. I'm going to leave. Are you going to step over the dead body to get to the car? Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like there's going to be at least one because you got 15 seconds left for this hostage's life. Then we might stack them up. Seems like you're going to have a, a pile of bodies. It does seem car, that way, doesn't it? And then the car is not going to be able to go anywhere. Yeah, I think so. How do you how do you think you're gonna, how, do you, how do you think you're going to make it over the pile of bodies without getting shot before you get into the car? We will stop there. <laughs> Thank you for volunteering. Eric, same question, man. What would you do different? Hindsight's twenty twenty. What were you trying to accomplish that you didn't get to? Um, so I thought, leading out of it, there was the whole introduction part. It was the first thing that popped into my head after it was over. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, didn't do that. Didn't didn't say. <laughs> like in, in the book was like, you know, hi, it's Brandon. You're talking to me now. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And so that whole that whole exchange of, of setting it. Which, which was the punch in the face, maybe, that I just completely forgot about doing that. Yeah. Um, so I wish I had done that. I think, I think part of it was those initial, those initial kind of big, it seems like, mirroring, you know, mirroring some stuff and, and doing those questions of, it seems like you have a plan here. Tell me more about how you, how you plan on this implementation process. Uh, that's interesting, and that actually answers some of our questions that have come in the room today. And you said, it seems like you have a plan here. And then what was your follow-up to that? The what's, what do you think this implementation process is going to be? Yeah what, yeah, what does this look like, right? It seems like you've got a plan here. How does this thing play out? That's really interesting. Okay, well, good. I, I like your assessment of yourself. So out the gate, I need a car in 60 seconds. You apologized. And you said, I'm sorry. We're not going to be able to do that. I love that for several reasons. One, because right out the gate, you wanted to let this guy know, like, you can trust me. Anything that I say, you can take it to the bank and cash it in. I'm going to be honest with you. And then also that little part of I'm sorry, it's a great way to drop in a, a, little, a, little, you know, a little dusting of empathy right before you drop a bomb on them. And so I kind of like that one-two comma. Like, I'm sorry. We're not going to be able to do that. At the very least, he might not be happy, but he knows he can probably trust what you have to say. And so you're setting that premise early on. And then your very next question is, how many hostages do you have? 
And I mean, so you tried to address the, uh, uh, the demand a little bit, and then you right went, jumped right into information gathering, starting with what we talked about in the hallway. This is what you don't know. You weren't wasting any time getting into it. He didn't give you much. I, I got to admit, I was a little disappointed on his response to that. Because I was like, that's a good question, man. Come on, give the guy a reward. But still, good question. And then you followed that with, what's your name again? Do you remember that moment? Like, what were you thinking? What were you trying to do? You know, I'm sorry we can't do that. How many hostages do you have? What's your name again? Where were you, where were you going with that? Do you remember? Not particularly. Uh, okay. I think, I think part of it was, was I was trying to, trying to get him to, to give me some piece of information about himself. Yeah. Okay. Um, which, which I think was leading into, you know, what'd you do this morning? How'd you get in this morning? That kind of stuff. All right. Yeah. But, well, but that, I, that was I, the I, intent, but I think. Good. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the intent was really the good, outright, right? The outright asking of it just gave him the opportunity to say, no, I'm not telling you my freaking name. Yeah. Well, you see, so you already know how you would change it. And that's, that's exactly what I would suggest. If that's where you were trying to go with that, trying to drop in this, like, I think you might've told me your name, but I don't remember if you told me your name. So what's your name again? Right. You know, like I definitely would have changed that. And you, and you would have said either one of those two things. I think that's that's a good alternative. Let's see. Where'd you go from here? Um, how are you going to do it? Are you just going to take a couple of people out? I didn't, I didn't get all the words down. But again, implementation focus there. How's this going to look? How are you going to do it when you come out? How many people are going to be coming out with you? And then you dropped in. I really like this question, except for the fact that it's probably a yes question. But you asked him, are you in danger? I thought that that was really good. I mean, I really, I really did, because it's like you, uh, uh, you're, you're trying to create an element of trust, and if like, there are things that you're afraid of that are really going to cause harm to you, I'm someone you can talk to about those things. And so I probably would have changed this so that the answer would have been some sort of a no, but again, the intent was really on point. Um, how'd you get into the bank this morning? Really good question. Uh, who else is in the bank with you? Did you come alone? Right? So there's personalization, there's information gathering, right? Little wordsmith in there. But I like, again, the intent and also this whole, like, who are the people, who's inside? Something these guys found out in crisis negotiation. If they could get the hostage taker to use the name of the hostage or hostages, the chances of them hurting that person drop by like 800%. And that was kind of where you were going. Like, all right, well, he's not, I can't be personalized here. He thinks I'm an asshole. Maybe I can personalize the hostages. And so I like that, I like that, that kind of last-ditch effort. Uh, got to the end, you know, why'd you pick this bank? What else is going on? How are we going to get to the car? I mean, you really just, you tried to pepper them with as many calibrated questions as you could think of. And I think there's probably a little wordsmithing you do here and there. But again, intention was good, and you're almost never going to go wrong using, using a skill. And so your total time, you went for, for two minutes and 52 seconds. So nice job there. Would you say in all your career, has there ever been a situation where you say, there's really a no, it's a no win to go. There is no way to win this thing. It's just, it's a lose, lose. And I, you know, does it ever get to that point where you feel like there's really nowhere to go? Like, you know, oh, yeah, either in, in, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, first of all, basic hostage negotiation stats, 93% close rate. All right. Which means seven percent of the time it ain't gonna work out. <laughs> you know that it's there. Best chance of success is not a guarantee of success. Sure. And our, you know, one of our challenges 
Gary Nestor, my former boss at a hostage negotiation, crisis negotiation unit, he developed a set of criteria called high-risk indicators. How do we spot right off? How do we spot this right off the bat? Is there is there a profile to use a dirty word? We're doing the same thing now in business. There's some deals that you are never going to get. Right. Let's just recognize them sooner. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Absolutely, yeah. Let's let's make it shorter. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. If I'm a if I've got hostages and I call you and I say, listen. I want a car, I think I saw this one on your YouTube channel, I want a car in 60 seconds outside. Right. Um, what do you, what's the first thing you say to me? You want to try? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I'm the... You're the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. Okay. Yeah. Chris, I'm going to blow this woman's head off if you don't give me a car in the next 60 seconds. How am I supposed to do that? Not my problem. You got 55 seconds. All right. So if I wanted to do it, it's just, it's madness out here. It's chaos. I mean, this is Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus is organized compared to the nonsense that's going on out there. So even if I wanted to do it, I can't do it in that time frame. I'm sure you're, you're the FBI, you're the police. You, I mean, you can make anything happen. 50 seconds. Sounds to me like you're not going to give me a chance. I'm giving you a chance right now. 50 seconds, Chris. There's plenty of cars out there. Go get one of the cars and pull it up outside or I'm going to blow her head off. Sounds like you have a reason to live. I do have a reason to live. That's none of your business. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to find out why. I mean, my first number one thing is to make sure that you live. So get me a car and I will drive off. Honestly, you've got 45 seconds. I don't want to talk anymore. If you're not going to give me a chance, how am I supposed to do it? I'm giving you a chance. 45 seconds. That's plenty of a chance. Like to me, even find, get all the commanders together and get them to think about this, which they're probably not going to do anyway. I will go and talk to them. But how am I supposed to find them all, talk to them, get them to think about it in 45 seconds? Okay, how long do you need? All right, now, first of all, I want you to understand. I don't think they're going to do it. Well, then I'm going to blow their head off. That would be your choice. See, now, so the other thing, too, is hostage negotiators are successful 93% of the time, which is one of the things that I learned in the business, which means 7% of the time they just ain't coming up. Now, I, we have to do everything we can possibly do in the meantime, but our number one goal is not putting any additional people at risk. Like, I get this question all the time. Like, if you think it's going to save a hostage, why don't you just give them a car and save those hostages? Well, I can't put additional people at risk. And by the way, while we were doing that, hmm. I don't know anybody put a clock on us, but we went more than 45 seconds. It's true. And what were you thinking when as we were going through it? Um, there was 
all the questions were provoking me into th- all the questions you asked me felt like they were dragging me away from my objective in a quite a tactical way. So I was thinking, ah, oh, this is annoying. He's making me talk and I don't want to talk. That's kind of what I was thinking. And then, yeah, I mean, you, the questions you asked were making me ponder and they were making me abandon my focus, which was to just get this car and kill this woman. Right. See, which was, I wasn't asking you that stuff to get you to answer. What I was really doing was do exactly what you talked about, get you to ponder, get you to yeah. think. You know, what, what Kahneman would, has talked about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, pondering, he would call slow thinking, in-depth thinking, where you really think about stuff. And then you really make the decision and you really make up your mind instead of me trying to hustle you. Like I could hustle you into something really quick, but it wouldn't be your decision. And the whole point of getting somebody to ponder something is so that when they do come to a decision, they own it. When you said the thing about, even if I wanted to do that, like I couldn't do that in 45 seconds or whatever, I liked that sentence because obviously there was a degree of empathy there. So even if I wanted to, it wasn't, you know, shitting on my parade. It wasn't attacking me too much. And you made me ponder the, the reality of the fact that it's not even possible. My demand is not even possible, even if you, you know, were on my side. So that was a very good question to to make me ponder myself to realize that what I'm asking for is not going to happen. See, and there's, there's another reason why I said it like that too. Um, because, you know, a lot of people, if you ask for something in a, in a business deal that they're not going to give you, they'll give you the classic American lie, I'll try. Mm. You know, and, and, uh, and may, maybe it's not an American lie, maybe it's a lie in the English language. Mm. Like, but you know, in any kind of deal, if somebody looks at you and says, I'll try. You don't get a good feeling. No. And you get I'll try enough times, you know right away it ain't never happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't do I'll try. You know, I I basically said, I don't think it's going to happen, but I'll check. Because I'm trying to shift us out of an adversarial into a collaborative conversation. And so then what I'm basically saying is like, I don't want to mislead you. I don't think this is going to happen. I will be your advocate. How important is that collaboration? No relationship survives long-term without collaboration. Just, just ain't going to happen. So you're giving me the impression that you're actually on my side to some degree and that we're collaborating to find an outcome together. Yeah, and in point of fact, see, the crazy thing is hostage negotiators have repeat customers. Hmm. If I get you out alive, the chances of um, you straightening out your life are not great. And the chances of you ending up in another hostage siege are high if you don't get killed otherwise. And you got to have a memory of the last hostage negotiator trying to work with you versus the guy hustled you and lied to you, guy or gal. So if you always look at all interactions as if you're going to have to pay for everything you said eventually, which means if you lie, you're going to pay for it. If you did everything you could to be collaborative, then your counterpart's going to remember that in the future. Like, well, it didn't go my way, but at least the guy didn't lie to me. It's like karma, isn't it? It's karma. A thousand percent is karma. I'm a, I'm a big believer in karma, very much. I had a few words to say about one of my sponsors on this podcast. As the seasons have begun to change, so has my diet. And um, 
right now, I'm just going to be completely honest with you, I'm starting to think a lot about slimming down a little bit because over the last couple of, probably the last four or five months, my diet has been pretty bad um, and it started to show a little bit. Really over the last two months, I go to the gym about 80% of the time. So I track it with 10 of my friends in a WhatsApp group in this tracker online that we all use together. We call it Fitness Blockchain. And I'm currently at 81%. Um, so 81% of the days I've done a workout in the last 150 days, right? So I'm going to the gym about six times a week. That's been a little bit impacted by the Diary of a CEO live tour, but I'm trying to stick to it. And so one of the things I'm doing now to reduce my calorie intake and trying to get back to being nutritionally complete and all I eat is I'm having the Huel protein shake. Thank you, Huel, for making a product that I actually like. The salted caramel is my favorite. I've got the banana one here, which is the one my girlfriend likes. But for me, salted caramel is the one. How important is it generally in negotiations to listen? Because a lot of people, you know, kind of think they can overpower someone with right. just talking at them. Right. Yeah. And and what they're, what they're called is... Um, they can't hold a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you, you, and there are a lot of people that are very visible that are doing that. And in the moment, they might look very good. But what ends up happening is they're frequently initially extremely successful. And then their success rates drop off a cliff. And then they don't hold a job because they were awesome in their first quarter. And it had a continuing steady decline in their productivity till it went to zero, and they they can't be tolerated anymore. But everybody sees a really loud guy or gal getting deals, or and and they're the ones that make the most noise about it. So your original question is how as important as listening? There is n no negotiation methodology that doesn't list listening as an advanced skill. No matter what school of thought somebody's in in negotiation. They all list listening as advanced, far more difficult than simply keeping quiet. It's critical. And you will actually end up uh, increasing the velocity of your deal cycles by listening, which a lot of people think it's really counterintuitive. But, you know, I did, I did an interview with Mark Cuban six or seven months ago. And I talked about listening. And he's like, yeah, you know, if I take the time to, to really hear somebody out in our first deal and pay attention to what's important with them, then every deal after that will come to me faster, having done it right up front. And it'll increase the velocity of my ability to make deals with them because they'll trust me. They'll know that I hear them out. They know that I'm looking out for them. And consequently, you know, it doesn't take me a long time to establish trust. And we come back, we come to the table, we get right down to it. And it really inc increases the velocity of my ability to make deals. And a lot of people can't see that because I got to hear them out. I got to, you know, blah, blah, blah. I got to find out what their point of view is. It seems highly efficient. But what it is, is incredibly efficient long term. Hmm. And then as it relates to speaking, when you're talking, when you were talking to me then in our little dummy negotiation, um, I noticed the tone of voice you took was very, very calm. You list in the book three different voices available to negotiators. Right. Give me a flavor of those three voices that are available to negotiators. Well, there's, there's, there's three natural types. Um, 
and humans. Fight, flight, or make friends. And these are the uh, our caveman ancestors that lived, either fought the saber-toothed tiger, ran from the saber-toothed tiger, or figured out a way to make friends with it. And the indecisive caveman got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, doesn't have any descendants. And we've got substantive reason to believe that that exists globally, regardless of gender, ethnicity, um, religion, uh, the three types, the globe splitting pretty evenly into thirds. Got a lot of that on it. Backs it up. Our brothers and sisters at Harvard pretty much agree based on their experience. Wharton has pulled a lot of the same data. comes very, very close to the same. And each type has a voice. You know, and the voice of the assertive, natural-born assertive, which I'm actually a natural-born assertive, is more the Donald Trump-style negotiator, you know, attacking, blunt, direct. You know, uh, Ivanka Trump once described her, her dad, Donald, and said, you know, he's not blunt, he's just direct. Well, he's just an example. But, you know, what I think is direct, you f- feel like you got hit in the face with a brick. <laughs> which is always counterproductive long-term, always, always, always long-term counterproductive, inhibits your ability to make deals. People get tired of getting hit in the face with a brick. So it wears them out. Then there's the very analytical type, um, which was, you know, that soothing, calming voice that I was using. Triggers a neurochemical response, and you it actually calms you down neurochemically. It's an involuntary, automatic response. Now you can fight it, you can fight your way back out of it, but you can't stop me from getting the calming neurochemicals started in your head. And you know, with if if you're careful not to seem either cold or condescending, that tone of voice is what the great TV interviewers use, the great news anchors, because there's a lot of There's confidence Mm. and calm simultaneously, and people really like it. And then there's, you know, there's a smiling voice, a friendly voice, and somebody just smiles when they speak. That triggers a different neurochemical reaction. The people that you automatically like right away, as soon as as soon as you lay eyes on them, as soon as they start speaking. You know, and there's an advantage to that. So I was using in in an emotional situation, and if you're in an, an emotional negotiation. You know, you want to go with the the soothing voice and smile, sprinkle that in, and now you kind of you get the combination of both of them, and it's it's collaboration. You're going to want to collaborate with me if I use that voice. I guess it's an attempt, and as you say, to like pacify pacify them. The other thing that I, in chapter three of your book you talk about is. By the way, you got a pretty good voice. I oh, mean, thank you, you. you got you got a, you got you you're basically downward inflecting. Mm. your voice portrays first of all it's very genuine mm. but it portrays a guy who's actually really thinking about what he says and he actually listens oh that's a very kind compliment thank you but she's still gonna die <laughs> <laughs> so something that's been highly requested from the impact school community has been to do a uh a role play of a hostage negotiation right. okay so I guess I'll be, who shall I be? The per- Obviously, I'm going to be the person who is like holding hostage, but right. think of a scenario. What's the scenario that we could do that's been kind of crazy that you've actually been in? 
I mean, there's been a lot. But I live in Dubai, right? So maybe right. we could do something to do with the Middle East. Well, I mean, the kidnapping dynamics pretty much play out the same regardless. And and, and I know that every now and and, and, and and Emirati gets grabbed. Okay. So I've grabbed... So I am from the UAE and I have... I've kidnapped three girls from the UK. Okay. That's the situation. Okay. Right. And uh, I'm holding them hostage at my my villa on the palm. That's the situation. Okay. Okay. And I want... I mean, I really want to pay off my villa and it cost me 70 million dirhams. Okay. So that's like, what, about 20 mil US? That's what I want. In, in exchange for the three girls. Okay. Okay, so how, how do you actually get in contact with these people, by the way? Uh, it's remarkably easy. Really? Because those girls are probably all carrying what? Phones, yeah. Cell phones. And in their cell phone address book, if you punch in the letters M-O-M, what do you get? Right, yeah. It's insanely well, easy. Well, for me, M-U-M. But, M-U-M, all right. Know. Yeah, there you go. Well, you would know that, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Mom. So, So then... So you call the family. So kidnappers you... Kidnappers call the family. The kidnappers call the family because they want the cash. Yeah. Interesting. And so do you do you find... Because for some reason, when I was a kid, I was always re- really terrified of getting kidnapped. I don't know why. I just, I just had this... I accidentally watched some like weird adult movies, I guess. Not like that type of adult movie, but just like scary adult films. Right. And I would always be really terrified. But do you think that in these situations, the girls who I guess I have kidnapped in this in this hostage negotiation, are they actually as in danger when it comes to their lives as maybe is going through their mind? Or how how do you tell the actual the real danger. How, how do you tell the level of danger that there actually is? Okay, so it's, it's, it's all going to start with the nature of the opening demand and, and the nature of the contact. Okay. Um, but so um, if you're in a kidnap business, and like any business, reputation matters. Okay. Or it gets around. Interesting. So if your buyer doesn't have a good feeling about you delivering the merchandise, mm. you're going to have trouble getting paid. Mm. Wow. Okay, so let's do this then. So I am the person who's on the palm in Dubai. He's kidnapped these three girls, right? And so I grab one of their phones and then I phone their mom. And then from there, the mom would get in contact with you. Or, you know, uh, yeah, the, the mom, uh, mom's going to get in, family's going to get in touch with, with somebody who's going to coach them. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it's either going to depend upon who they are, the level of acumen, right. whether or not they already had kidnapping ransom insurance on the girls, wow. which if they're traveling internationally, there's a decent chance that they do. Then there's going to be a private contractor that's either going to handle the negotiations or most likely coach mom. Wow. So the mom is actually the one on the phone during the negotiating. If she's coachable, can be. Absolutely. Wow. That is, wow, that's a lot. I didn't realize. I thought that it was it would often be you who would then be on the phone with the host, the person holding the person hostage. 
Well, you know, to, to keep it as real as possible. Yeah. You know, you want real people on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I remember hearing uh, the story in your book where the person was just like making these outlandish claims and that's how you knew that they weren't actually going to follow through. Yeah. Or yeah, the nature of the demand. Like, for example, if the demand is, look, we want all the Brits out of Iraq in 72 hours from going to kill your daughters. Yeah. It's impossible. Even if you wanted to get all the Brits out of Iraq in 72 hours right. or at all, you couldn't do it in 72 hours. Yeah. I mean, that's a guaranteed failure to start with. Mm. So is what they're asking, if you were willing to comply now, yeah. could you do it? But so here's the thing. What if they just won't budge? And that is really, that's exactly what they want. And they just won't budge. I guess that's where you come in and, and get them to budge. Well, yeah. Then if, if that's, if they, if it, in their mind, well, let's play it out. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'll go for something more crazy than that then. Sure. So I'll say, I'll go with what you said then. I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours. Okay. Right. So, all right. So at this point, so you're I calling a family phone. I'm calling you. I'm answering. Okay, okay. So Just you're going to be... ring, 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 and okay. I'll answer. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Hey, I have your daughter and two friends, and I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours, or I'm going to kill them all. If I could do that, what would, you, what would you want? I mean, what do you want from me other than that? I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours. Okay. Um, first of all, how do I know you have the girls? I can put them on the phone right now. Okay. So then you'd pass, they'd pass the, they probably don't, at that point, do they usually pass the phone or not? No, they don't want to put them on the phone. That's the last thing they want to do. Oh, okay. So I, I screwed up as, I'm a really bad well, <laughs> kidnapper, I guess. Even though it's the last thing they want to do, the reason you started to comply was because you said to yourself, that's actually a legitimate question. Mm. Right. Oh yeah, exactly. I've already complied. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's the key to any negotiation is no matter what the other side is saying, you're always entitled to ask legitimate questions. Mm. Okay. Okay. I've got as it. long as it's as long as it's it's actually a legitimate question. Yeah. And that's and that see that was one of the big pivots we made as a result of the Burnham case mm. was we discovered that that's actually a legitimate question. So no matter who you are on the other side, and this, I know it's going to sound odd, and I don't mean this is is negative, but unless you actually have something wrong with you, like mm. the, if there's if you're actually delusional. Yeah. Or if you're actually having hallucinations, which means there's something fundamentally wrong with your wiring, for lack of a better term. If all, and there, there isn't anything fundamentally wrong with kidnappers wiring, because if there was something fundamentally wrong with their wiring, they wouldn't be able to execute the kidnapping in the first place. Because it requires planning and organization, which you can't do if there's something actually wrong with you. And it could be, you could have, for example, schizophrenia. 
and to whom there's something fundamentally wrong with your wiring. Now, because um, I, you know, you actually do have a voice in your head, and I actually don't know what that voice is saying. And there are certain drug addictions that people have found out after the fact they develop the same sorts of problems, like um, uh, methamphetamine. I understand former meth users. It just it it actually damages their brain. And even when they've been clean and sober for a number of years, they have a tendency to develop schizophrenic behavior. And we found that out the hard way. So otherwise, if there's only a chemical imbalance, which if somebody's not acting, quote, normally or they're dysfunctional, it's just a chemical imbalance. All the rules still apply. So if I ask you a legitimate question, you're going to go like, hmm. That's actually a legitimate question. And that's how I gain, begin to gain the upper hand. That's huge, yeah, because I didn't even think twice about anything else that I wanted to say because it was a legitimate question with a, legit, a legitimate and logical answer. And so, uh, okay, let's go back to this then. So I say, I mean, I already said it, so I guess I'll have to keep going down could, that route. You can route. put them on a phone. Okay. I mean, it wouldn't be, that's how you get a hostage. That's really the only way to get a hostage on the phone. So in my head, I probably wouldn't do it yet, though. I probably, I probably, so you said to me, okay, you get them on the phone. So then I'll be like, and if I get them on the phone, are you going to? Okay, let's say, we, let's say I just spoke to one. Okay, okay, you just spoke to one, then fine. You just took the phone back. Okay, so now that you know that I have the girls, can you get? all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours. All right. First of all, it's going to be hard. I don't know if you've thought about how hard that would be. I don't care how hard it is because if I don't get all the Brits out of Iraq, I will kill the three girls within 72 hours. If I could... How do I know you won't anyway? Well, I really just want, I just want all the Brits out. That's all I want. And I can make sure that I get these girls out to you as soon as all the Brits are out of her up. How are you going to do that? Well, I can have a car come pick them up. I can have you flown out. Um, I have a jet so I can get you flown out here to Dubai and, and I can have you come pick them up right from my place. Do you have a jet? <laughs> of course. And it's safe? I mean, what do I know about the jet? How do I know that's safe? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see how you feel that, but here's the thing. If you guys don't start acting on this quickly, then I will start torturing the girls even before you start working on getting people out of Iraq. Sounds like you want to do something that's going to make it even harder for me to accomplish a goal. It's so it's so it's so crazy how the tonality on your side is so powerful because I've never really realized how powerful tonality is until this. I mean that is it's huge. I mean maybe as well because 
it puts so much pressure on you as the person who is trying to negotiate with you as the hostage negotiator, that tonality. So I think I'm a terrible negotiator. So let's start with that. Right. We will definitely today cover some of the principles of that. But what I really want to talk about is in the book, when you're talking about some of the scenarios that you were in where people, it's a life and death situation right. and you're the line of defense, how do you deal with that emotionally? Like that's my job feels high stress, but that's no one's life is on the line. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you just don't know any better. <laughs> Maybe when you first started, but not long-term. Uh, you know, training in the FBI, they started out really good. Um, I mean, they hit you, uh, you know, with the Tyson uh, line. Everybody has planned until they get punched. Like the second day of the negotiation training in the FBI, they hit you square between the eyes with something really hard. Like a real story or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that? You know, they spent, they spent the first day laying out a philosophy, which if you understand the nuances of the words, I still completely agree with. A hostage has never been killed on deadline in the United States, ever. And so, like, you get kind of comfortable and you got a sense that negotiation is pretty successful overall. I mean, in reality, it's about a 93% success rate. Whoa. And then, and then the very next day, they present a scenario where it looks like a hostage got murdered right on deadline, right in front of everybody. And you just like, I mean, you were hit in the head. Can I use the words you use in the book? Because this was when I realized I don't want your job or the one that you had back then. You said she was shot twice in the back with a shotgun. It almost cut her in half as she flew through the glass window. And And I thought, God damn. Like, I, I don't know. I'd find a way. But Chris, I don't know how I'd come back from that. Like that would, that would damage me in ways that I can't imagine. Well, that, that ends up kind of getting into a secondary characteristic because then when I was running a program, I went out of my way to look for negotiators that had been involved in a siege where somebody got killed and they bounced back. Mm. You know, typically with a success rate that, that's that high, if any time you're under less than double digits of a job, sieges, whatever you want to call them, probably everything you touch is going to turn out good and you're going to get a little overconfident. And then once you start climb past double digits, I mean, odds are starting to run against you. And what happens with pretty much every time is the negotiator will be like, you know, I, I didn't get into this to watch people die. I'm going to find another thing to do. Or they're going to say, I'm never going to let this happen again. And those people will double down and they'll be more courageous in speaking truth to command whether it be an ambassador or an on-scene commander, and basically saying, like, no, we can't do it like this. I don't you care ever what you think, involved in an operation where somebody got killed? Yeah. So how did you, how did you, did you need to put yourself back together or do you not react like that? Let's start with that question. Um, I've been uh, repeating one phrase in my head for a long time leading up to that that I didn't really realize what it meant. My old boss, Gary Nessner, used to always teach us best chance of success. What we're doing is the best chance of success. And so then when uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines, a lot of people got killed. And finally- Can you give us a quick breakdown? Uh, what happened? Um, uh, Gracia and Martin Burnham and another American citizen named Guillermo Sabero got scooped up in a dive resort in the Philippines in a region of the Philippines everybody thought was completely safe. Now, the bad guys, the Abu Sayyaf, were looking for Westerners 
There'd been a siege earlier in the same year in another part of the Philippines where they looking for Americans and Westerners. They got nothing but Western Europeans. And he ultimately, that, that case was a train wreck, which I was not involved in because there were no Americans there. And the bad guys ended up scoring about $20 million as a result. Oh. Which made a rival gang jealous of the score. So they go out and they do an even more daring raid. They cross like 400 miles of open ocean on these lousy little boats, scooped everybody up in a dive resort, ended up getting three Americans and a bunch of Filipinos. Um, Sabero ends up getting murdered by the, the terrorists about uh, three-ish weeks in, 21-ish days. How does the siege go on for that long? Oh, this thing lasted 13 months. So, Oof. yeah, that was, just, that was just the beginning. That wasn't even op- the opening act. <laughs> so, and they, did they kill them to make a point, to just prove, like, we're serious? Well, you know, they were uh, Western American arrogance, if you will. When Sabero finally got killed, or got killed early on, you know, there had been Filipinos, the bad guys were killing the Filipinos regularly. Like, it was Ooh. no big deal. And I can remember at that point in time when we tried to stir up a little outrage over it, I thought, you know, we have sat here and not really said much at all while these Filipinos are getting beheaded. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, we want everybody to be bent out of shape. And I remember thinking, like, if I, if I was a host country, my reaction would be like, oh, now it's important to you? So, um, but that the group that was doing it at the time, I mean, they were... They did all the bad things that, that terrorist murderers do. I mean, all of them. How do you, so one, was that the first time that you were on a call where somebody got killed? It was the first kidnapping that I was directly involved in where somebody, where people were getting killed, yes. All right, so when the first body shows up, what, how, are you the one talking to them? No, we coached. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why, you know, what I'm doing now is applicable, uh, the, the Black Swan method is based on hostage negotiation, which is universal. Human nature. Everybody's human. So I could show up in any country. I mean, literally any country, any culture, Philippines, Nigeria, Cape Town, Baghdad. All I need to do is find somebody that's coachable. And that person probably knows the market, if you will. And I understand the human wiring. So we put together their, their, their knowledge of the market in very general terms and my knowledge of how to get people to engage. And then we can negotiate anywhere. When the first body comes out, what happens to you? It's the first time that this has gone awry. We're in the 7% now yeah. that don't go well. It, for me, when I think about the way that that would like impact my mind and force me to like regroup, did it knock you off or are you just laser focused? Well, you got to keep rolling because the case was still ongoing. And so no time for emotions right now. Is that what you're telling yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of probably, you know, you just, I mean, you got no choice. The case is still going on. You got, you, you got a team. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. You can always run screaming from the building. <laughs> but really, and this, this is where life gets interesting for me, is that 
by nature, I would say I'm a run screaming from the building person, but I had to flip it all because I don't respect that. And right. in discovering that you don't respect your initial impulse becomes a fascinating journey if yeah, you're willing yeah, yeah, to yeah. walk it. A so I'm, I'm always curious if, if other people are having to do what I have to do to keep myself centered in there, or if it's just like, nah, it didn't occur to me to run screaming from the building. Well, and when you're when you're in the midst of, you know, when you're in the battle, I mean, you can't you can't you can't bail. I mean, people are looking at you to lead. There are other people's lives that are still on the so line. So that's your you identity. Yourself up. You wouldn't allow yourself to do that. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're back in the Philippines. The first body just gets dropped off. You obviously decide that you're going to get stronger. You don't want it to happen again. How do you like? Are you just really good at recentering yourself emotionally or have you are is it a meditative practice like when the body hits i i know what that would be like for me that rush of blood to my head where my ears almost feel like they're closing in you can hear your heartbeat beating in your ears um how did you did that happen and you had to calm yourself down or does that just not happen and, and you're just so laser focused well, it was principally because we were still in the midst of the siege. There were still two, <clears throat> still two Americans whose lives were at stake. And up to that point in time, the, intergovern the intergovernmental organization was probably at its worst. Like we had previously gotten through a case and everybody had gotten away with kind of half cooperating and the bodies hadn't been – the case we just finished uh, just a couple of months earlier, like nobody got killed. And it's a little bit like like success. You went, you know, a football analogy again. It's tough for a football team to repeat after they won the Super Bowl because people are a little more focused on their own success versus team success once they reach the pinnacle. So the cooperation in the early part of the second case was horrible. I mean, horrible because they'd gotten away with it previously, and there was no body count. But now there was there was people were dying. So we really had to. We got arms more around the case. We pushed a little harder on cooperation. People got a little more serious about not cooperating, which in the long run, 12 months later, was when the final round, uh, two out of three remaining Americans got killed in a botched rescue attempt. And the, the case had gotten really ugly again at that point. Now, that one hit me harder than the first one because in the first one, Nobody had been cooperating with us, so I felt less responsible for the outcome because the government of the Philippines was playing games with us. You know, they 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 felt out of control on the last case, so they gave us a guy who was supposed to handle the negotiations that was just completely going missing in action on a regular basis when he was supposed to be with us. I mean, he and and they pulled him right after the first series of deaths. They were like, all right, this ain't working out so good. So I felt, you know, we still had the case going, and I hadn't got my arms wrapped around it that well. Now, 12 months later, I had had my arms wrapped around it, and then when Martin Burnham, when the word came in that he got killed, that that hit me. That was a, That was a real... I'll never forget that moment. I was I was at home in the U.S. when I when I got the call that he'd been killed. That for me at the time was difficult. Uh, worst moment of my professional career. One of my worst personal moments until 
I'm listening to a case a couple years later, listening to a negotiator talk about how hard it was on him when a baby had gotten killed in a siege. Oh, God. And I remember thinking at the time, and it was a guy I had a tremendous amount of respect for. I thought, hard on you. That wasn't your relative. And then when I thought about that, I thought, and how am I, you know, feeling sorry for myself over Martin Burnham's death because he wasn't my father. He wasn't, you know, my spouse. He wasn't my brother. You know, I, I got no right feeling bad about this. Or at least to the extent that his family members do. So that, you know, that was a bit of, you know, the overall journey that putting things in perspective. Like you asked to be in the middle of this stuff. It's a volunteer job. You're going to feel sorry for yourself when you volunteered. That's probably out of perspective. Why did you volunteer? You know, I, I found myself, I was in crisis response. I was a member of the FBI SWAT team, and I had re-injured my knee, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. I liked crisis response. People got to make up their mind. You know, you can't go, well, let's sleep on this. You know, let's give us 24 hours to think about it. You know, you can't do that. You, get, you know, you got to make a decision. And I've always been in favor of decision-making. So I'd been a SWAT guy, and we had hostage negotiators. And it was a little bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, some stuff is a lot harder than it looks from the outside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally remember thinking to myself, I talk to people every day. I could talk to terrorists. How hard could it be? You know, my son and I joke that a Voss family motto is, how hard could it be? <laughs> Which is a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like the Redneck's famous last words, hey, watch this. Yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> hold my beer. So, uh, but then I got into it and I've been volunteering. When I finally got trained, I got volunteered on a suicide hotline. And then when I'm in it, I'm like, I'm around these extraordinary people that are doing phenomenal things with words. I mean, with words. Not actual actions, just words, making a huge difference and being in the middle of these sieges and making a difference simply by what they said. And I thought, now, nah, you know, I could get into this. This, this. this could be good. And it was. And so how does that journey begin of learning what to say? Like, what are they, what are the sort of magic words? Like, take us back to the Philippines. The bodies start coming out. How do you talk somebody down like that? Like it, it just seems like all hope is lost once they kill the first person. There's no backing out. Yeah, man. They still got more people that are at stake, <clears throat> and so you, you you can't not communicate. And you know, it's kind of like any other negotiation where the other side is doing stuff that is just not in their interest, but they're absolutely convinced that they're right. I mean, these guys want to get paid, and Negotiation is not what it is to you, it's what it is to the other side. You get all bent out of shape that it's a horrific, horrible thing. That was something I heard you say, I think in, in an interview. Yeah. So there is no such thing as logical. There's right. only what matters to you. Yeah. And I was like, oh side. my God, that is so true. You literally just cut through decades worth of economics textbooks <laughs> that try to make people seem rational with that yeah. one sentence. That, that, the second I heard you say that, I was like, oh my God, that is absolutely true. There is no such thing as logical. There's only what matters to you. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. so is that like when you come into a situation like that, are you just asking yourself what matters to this person? Yeah. You is know, that is that the most fundamental question? What matters? Then what matters, and and then ultimately people make up their mind principally on what they perceive the loss to be. Um, and that's that's human nature. Doesn't matter the scenario. When you say the loss, the loss that led them to do this, or what losing in that scenario would look like? Got to look at both. Loss that drove them to the table in the first place to take the action, and then what loss are they avoiding by the action? And you want to get in their head and find out what it is. And since what loss are they avoiding is all perception, you know, vision of the future, then depending upon how you got in their head, if you're in there by invitation, which is the whole point of empathy or the tactical application of empathy, to get in by invitation. Since you're in there by invitation, then the idea is to get them to look at another loss. So if it's a kidnapping, it's a question that is, is, seems as um, merciless as how are you going to get paid if you kill people? How, how are we going to collaborate? You know, how much are you losing by getting rid of hostages when you could have gotten paid for them? Because somebody's going to scare up the money for the hostage. Right. Somebody's going to. A hostage negotiator's real job internationally is to make sure that if somebody scares up that money, that there's enough of a trail left that you can hunt them down afterwards. It's exactly why you give a bank teller bait money. You don't want the bank teller to get shot over money. Now, you also don't want the bank robber to leave the bank with the entire contents of the vault. You give them enough money so the bank teller doesn't get shot, the bad guy leaves, and you chase them down afterwards. That's the way to save lives and put the bad guys out of business. Do you want to get them focused back on the money again? And then if they kill more hostages, it's their loss. And that's when they start to think like, all right, well, maybe we made our point. You know, let, let, them, let, them, let them feel that way. Who cares how they feel as long as you get what you want? And that's the idea to try to re-engineer the outcome. Steve, what other high points do we need to hear? I mean, Danielle's been very generous so far, and, and I love what she said. I mean, it's really encapsulated what I was hoping we could get across and, and helping people understand. It's about everybody getting better. A positive sum game. I think what, what what's fascinating, and Danielle can speak to this, is the journey itself. Mm. In the beginning, like one, one of the points in the beginning that you brought up, you know, big, big challenge, not going on a listing appointment without a commitment that they're going to list, which is unheard of in real estate because every seller expects the agent will come out to the house, you know, look at the house, give their whole presentation, and then let them decide what they want to do. And, and you know, one of the things you brought up is not going out to the house without a commitment that they're going to list. And so in the beginning when, you know, that was a, that was a big hill to climb 
in the beginning and there were some real rough spots because when you know you got to be terrible in order to be good if you're not willing to be terrible you're not going to get great at anything and so she had to be willing to do things that she had never done before and you know that's not an easy conversation what do you mean you don't want to come out to the house what, what, are you, what are you talking about everybody else is how can you not right and and, and you know another thing that you brought up you know when when someone refuses to be a victim that can bring out predator behavior and danielle started running into that and when you don't know where that's coming from in the beginning right you don't have a frame of reference and someone beginning to attack you that doesn't feel any good and, and you know and she's checking herself is it me is it my tone is it what i'm saying you know why am i getting that reaction and so in Dan Young get into more. So in the beginning, like that was a big mountain to climb. And now, now it's about how can I get the call down to 10 minutes or less? That's what it, how can I determine whether I'm the fool or the favorite? I don't care which one I am. How can I determine within 10 minutes? You know, it started out with, you know, 40 minutes. Then 30 minutes. Hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the Zoom call, you know, and, and, and now it's like the conversation is how can we just find out now, fool or favorite, and be done with it? And, and but, you know, th this has been over a three, four year period of time of trial and error and trial and error. And, you know, one of the things that I think I said to Danielle up front that really helped her. And I use the analogy with Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods won his first Masters tournament by 14 strokes, you know, young kid, early 20s, beat the world of best golfers by a million. He went to his golf coach and said, I don't like my swing. I, I you know, I'm, I, I'm winning, but I, I, I'm not in love with my swing. And decided to retool his whole swing. And... And it took him one year, one year. Now, this is Tiger Woods. This is a guy practicing every day. Took him one year to hit the ball once the way he had envisioned he wanted his swing to be. And then it took him another six months to groove in that swing. Well, in that four, uh, 16, 18-month uh, period of time, he didn't win any golf tournaments. And the press was on him and everyone was on him. Tiger Woods, flash in the pan, flash in the pan. What happened to Tiger? After he got that new swing grooved in, he won, ten, I believe, 10 of the next 14 tournaments. And, and I, you know, I shared that with Danielle, that you may take a dip in performance in order to experience a real spurt in growth. And, and that, and you can comment, Daniel, I think that allowed her to relax into this space of it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And no more, um, I had to take and be okay with no more blood money and no more, you know, and a potential dip in performance in order to come out on the other side with something I would be really excited and excited about. It has been an insane journey. I've been hung up on 
and yelled at um, and everything you can think of. Did we lose you guys? Like no, I'm still here. I'm I'm sitting there, probably sitting there with my mouth open in admiration. But because you know, here's what here's what what I'm up against um, is when you're. I'm a top agent in my in my geographic area, and I have strong digital marketing skills, and I've really embraced social proof through online reviews from going a long time back, uh, pre-Yelp days. And so I get a lot of calls from the internet and sometimes they're my people and they've become wonderful clients. Um, but a lot of times they have someone in mind and often that person has less experience and often they don't do as good of a marketing job. Um, and for what they don't have the same track record. Um, and so the people are, you know, wanting to double check that. And so they want to do their due diligence. And so the obvious choice to do that with are the, the experts that you can find online that in any, you know, any field, but specifically for real estate agents. And so I get a lot of those calls. And at the end of the day, they end up wanting to go with the person who has less experience and less um, negotiation ability, less marketing prowess because of the relationship, you know, because of some sort of connection or something that they have with them that makes them feel comfortable with them, that they were comfortable from the beginning and they're just double checking. And so now I'm at this point where what I want to do is actually tell people that and that's where I'm right. playing with now is just saying, you know, here's, here's what we're looking at. Like, here's what often happens and see if I can just get to the truth, because if that's what you want, I'm happy to answer your questions for a few minutes um, and give you that second opinion you need. But it's kind of like a, a, a doctor or a lawyer, when you go get a second opinion, like you'll get 15 minutes of someone's time potentially for free, but then that's it. You have to hire me to get the full strategy and the full, um, the full technique. And that's where I'm prioritizing my time is for the people who are hiring me so that they can get that expert that i don't know that kind of we were rambling but no that was cool i mean you had so many cool things there um which is exactly what when people get to the level where you're at you know we got a new phrase uh construct that we're thinking about now called shoe ha and re which okay. is um uh martial arts vernacular when you're in shoe you're at the, you're a beginner just do what the master says you know do what Steve tells you to do. Say it the way Steve tells you to say it word for mm -hmm. word. Don't think about it. Yeah. And then you start to get your repetitions in a, a little bit. And, and, you know, there maybe there be a chaotic period of time where you feel very unsure. You feel awkward. Maybe you're getting weird responses. Maybe you're getting hung up on. Maybe you're getting yelled at. But then when you get into high, you're beginning the, the middle range. You're beginning to develop your own rhythm. You're beginning to see what other quote masters say and the elements of what they say and how that fits into your thinking now. And you're seeing things, stuff coming at you. And then in re 
the expert level, and by the way, all these skills are perishable. I mean, like golf, you don't keep playing, you're going to fall back down off the mountain. And re you're making up your own rules and you're trying new things and you're taking, you're probably advancing the, the thinking. And that's exactly where you are now by mm -hmm. saying like, if I know this is going on and I know how to tell people honestly with integrity, without hurting their feelings, let me see what happens. If I just tell them, look, I know you're looking for due diligence. I know you got a favorite. You know, you're a human being, so no matter what the fact, logic, and reason says, you're still going to make a bad decision, which is go with your favorite instead of me. But, you know, let me get it. Let me get it. Give you a taste of what a top agent can really do for you if you ever change your mind, which then the last impression is a lasting impression. You're going to convert them down the line because you're a top agent for good reason. They're going with someone with lesser skills and abilities than you which means that's a one and done deal for them. But you've left a great last impression on them in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. which if they're ever going to come around, that's the highest percentage chance of them coming around. What are some known knowns when you roll up on average, the sort of 80, 85% range when you roll up, you know, okay, mom, probably going to be a button. They want to be in control. They want to be heard. Um, are there any others sense of loss? And, you know, a, an idea of some sort of a loss. Loss is the strongest be, tr uh, behavior trigger of human nature, period. Period. How do you track that down? Um, well, first of all, it, it's, it's like you know what you're looking for to begin with. And it's not really active listening. It's proactive listening. And there are certain things. Or the tactical application of empathy. What do we know to be true? What do we got to bet on? Loss is the primary the biggest impact on decision-making of human beings across the board. Danny Kahneman, 2002, Nobel Prize winner, behavioral economics, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain for people, period. If you're human, you're wired that way, which makes it the biggest trigger in thinking. So if they're engaged in a behavior that we don't understand, they perceive the loss, and we got to start you know, sniffing around for it, looking for the hints, knowing it's there. And then consequently, you're going to get them to change their mind about something, you reformulate the loss. If I say to you, if you do this, there's a 90% chance you fail. You're like, I'm not doing that. But if I say, do this, you know, you got a 10% chance of success. Ooh, it sounds and lands completely different. 10%, I could su succeed. 10%, I'm a winner. I'm in the 10%. You know, it, it lands differently. But if you want to make sure they don't do it, 90% chance you'll fail here. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking that risk. That's too far against me. I mean, that will shut somebody down for sure. 10% success might move them forward. But I guarantee you I shut you down with a 90% failure rate. There is no difference in those numbers. Exact same numbers. And so you start to see it across the board and like, all right, so we're going to get them to change their mind. We just change the frame of the loss. You're in a merger and an acquisition negotiation. Entrepreneur, sole proprietor is trying to sell this company. Wants to get, you know, whatever, um, 10X EBITDA because a buddy of his got 10X. Now, the person buying his company wants to take him 
wants him to take a lower multiple so that in two years he retains a piece and he makes 30, 40, 50, 100 million dollars more by taking less now. Guy's thinking his loss. I, you know, I, I can't, I can't take a million dollars less for this. I can't take nine when I should take ten. I'll lose a million dollars. Take nine, take a piece. You're willing to risk a hundred million dollars seven years from now. You want to lose a hundred million dollars over a million dollars now. And they'll be like, "No, that's crazy. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard." You just reframed what the loss is. And that's where you get people to change their mind because whether it's a terrorist thinking we have lost, you know, we've been harmed in the past. We've lost our homeland. You know, we've lost our identity. Terrorism is about choosing violence as a way to make up for loss. Interesting. I have never heard that before. Uh, Is that universal? Um, It's the universal driver of human decision-making. Now, how they're looking at the loss, you know, you know, there's kind of three groups that are out there that you see over and over again. You know, lethal triad, they called it the uh, charismatic leader, the sociopathic um, middlemen, you know, the number twos, captains, lieutenants, and then the inadequate followers. There's a terrorism book from way back when called Crusaders, Criminals, and Crazies. Uh, a friend of mine, Tom Strange, wrote a book called The Bad, The Mad, and The Sad. So it kind of breaks down into, you know, the, the complete charismatic leader. Maybe he believes in a cause, maybe he just believes in himself. The criminals are involved. They're just doing it because it's a way to combat the status quo and continue to co- commit crime. The people that are looking for identity, you know, it's harsh to describe them as the ina- inadequate followers, but the sad, you know, they're looking for an identity. And it's, the leadership has convinced them that they've been harmed by this perceived loss and they have to make up for it. So it's kind of packaged along those lines. And is that who's going to be there actually doing the hostage part? So you're not dealing with the charismatic leader, you're dealing with the sad underlings? Principally, the sad underlings are their implementers because they're the cannon fodder for the leader. You know, the, the leadership, whether it's a charismatic leader or a sociopathic enabler, who are they going to put at risk? Who are you going to send out to conduct the kidnapping? Who's going who's gonna to hold the hostage? Who's going to be the hostage's jailer? That's the worst job on their side, you know, to have to sit around with a hostage day after day. It's, a, it's, a, it's you know, you're not, you're not giving that to your talented people. How did these guys, 13 months? Yeah. How did they not just get bored and want it to end? Um, they're prepared for a little longer siege. They've got a vision of a big payoff in the end. That $20 million payout the year previous painted visions of wealth, mm. which means if they don't get their $20 million, they're losing. So you'll stay in the game longer because of this perceived loss. And you know, the are vision you guys of riches. letting food get in, or have they stocked up enough food to get through all this? Well, we're trying to we're trying to get stuff in. Um, uh, you know, didn't know this was going on at the time, but um, Dan Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, wrote an article in Vanity Fair 
probably about a year after this case went down, revealing a whole bunch of information that I was not privy to in the case. So according to Dan Bowden, who evidently has great resources in the U.S. government, not in the FBI, there were unnamed government agencies that were setting in, sending in food deliveries with informants that had tracking devices in them. Oh. That, again, according to Dan Bowden in his article in Vanity Fair, you know, I am quoting a public source. I am not quoting, pri- you know, secret mm. government information that uh, there were food deliveries that were being made with trackers on them. Okay, so that starts getting complicated with all kinds of different agencies <laughs> pulling in different directions. Right. Um, what is all this like seeing people beheaded, uh, recognizing the sad, the mad? mad the bad and sad. Yeah. Like, nice rhyme there, huh? Thank you, Tom Strantz. I'll, I'll try to remember it better. But um, what is all of this revealing to you like about humanity? Do you, do you have a, a look at humanity like this is crazy that this is ugly are you optimistic like i mean that you've seen some gnarly shit like what does this give you a takeaway because you said i could drop you anywhere and you know enough about human wiring right to to go into this yeah and it does not paint a pretty picture with the ways in which we are manipulatable between this is all about loss and just reframing the loss completely reframe like the fact that we would do this kind of crazy shit over loss Did you ever wonder what are the emotional intelligence secrets that FBI hostage negotiators use to get their way and whether or not they would do you any good in your business or personal negotiations? So after all, if there's a bank robbery with hostages, which I have negotiated, and there's four hostages, does the hostage negotiator say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we meet in the middle and we'll call it a day? <laughs> you really can't compromise when you're a hostage negotiator, and that's that's the way that I learn negotiation. So I'll I'll take you through a little bit of how I got to learn it and how I began to apply it in my business and professional life. And it really started on a night in late winter in New York City. Well after dark, I left the the FBI office, 26 Federal Plaza, and fought my way through traffic to get to a suicide hotline. I was volunteering on the suicide hotline because I've been told that that was the best way to become a hostage negotiator, the best experience. And as a side note, I will tell you, it's, a, it's the best way to learn how to really listen to people on an emotional intelligence perspective. So I got to the hotline that night and I picked up the phone and I answered the phone and my uh, hotline voice. Hello, this is Helpline. Which was the, came to be known as the late night FM DJ voice. (laughs) Which now I refer to as the late night FBI DJ voice. But the voice on the other end of the phone just blurted out. He says, I, I, need, I need your help. I need your help. I got to put a lid on this day. I got to bring a lid to this day. And I listened to him and I, and I sensed that he was frantic. So that's exactly what I said. I said, you sound frantic. And immediately I could, I could feel a change in his tone of voice. And his voice came down. I felt strength come into his voice. And he started to talk to me. And he began to tell me uh, his issue was that he was battling the disease of paranoia. 
and he was going to go on a car trip the next day with his family. And in, he knew that on that car trip, because of his paranoia, he would get completely wound up and, and overcome with the paranoia. So since it was going to happen the next day, that night he was overcome with paranoia, thinking about the paranoia for the next day. And it completely wrapped himself up and needed to put a lid on the day. So as we began to talk, uh, he began to tell me also about how much his family was helping him. And I used something that I'd, someone else had once said to me, and I remember how strong it was because I was explaining to a colleague of mine how involved my family was and how supportive they were. And at that time, my colleague said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. And when he said that to me, I remember how good it felt and how it just drew together everything that I was feeling and how I felt myself strengthened when he said that. So I said to this, the same thing to this man on the phone. I said, it sounds like your family's really close. And he says, yeah, we are. And so then he began and he continued to talk and he talked and he began to tell me all the things that he was doing in order to battle the paranoia. And I was, I was very impressed with it. He sounded like a very determined man to me. So I said to him, you sound really determined. And he said, he said, you know, I am determined. He said, you know, I'm going to go on that car trip tomorrow and I'm going to be fine. Thanks for everything you did for me. And he hung up. <laughs> now, I said three things to him, just three simple things. And I didn't know it at the time. And I was explaining to a friend of mine at brunch just the other day. He was telling me he used to write for Hollywood. And he said, you know, what you're saying about what you do makes all the sense in the world. I never would have guessed what you were doing, but once you explain it, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like a great Hollywood ending. You have no idea what's coming at the end of a, of a movie, but when it happens, it makes sense. And that's what hostage negotiators do. And we do now do in business. We take things that you all know about, but we combine them in ways that make them incredibly powerful that no one ever sees. With that, what's, what's the what, what do you see as the major differences between hostage negotiations that, that you've obviously been a part of and business negotiations? What are the, I mean, outside the, <laughs> the potential of death, um, but uh, what, are, what do you see as the big differences between hostage and, and, and business negotiations? Hostage negotiations are generally calmer. No shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you something, you know, um, in hostage negotiation, uh, you know, since we learned, uh, we didn't know it was emotional intelligence, but we learned how to dial into people faster mm -hmm. with some neuroscience tools, emotional intelligence tools. They really tend to be, they, they tend to be calmer. I mean, business people have far more stories of people screaming at them, yelling at them, storming out of the room, trying to destroy negotiations than any of the hostage negotiators I ever worked with. Did. And that's just, just crazy if you think about it. But if, if you, the idea is to, to use really tactical emotional intelligence from the beginning, then it makes sense that, it, that ours are calmer and, and probably more effective overall. And is it because my, my assumption here on, on Haas is that they might start really emotional, but then, I mean, they might start really aggressive, but then through some tactical stuff, you can kind of calm down and come to a, an agreement. Whereas business, do they, do they keep the emotions throughout or do they keep the hostility throughout? Well, um, people get mad when, they don't, when they're not heard. 
I mean, it, it seems like ridiculously obvious, mm -hmm. but very few business people go into a negotiation to hear the other side out because they're so determined to be heard. I got a case I got to make. I got a value proposition I got to give. I got an argument I have to make. I have to explain to them what my position is. And, you know, the, the Stephen Covey advice from, from way back, seek first to understand and be understood. This is a tactical application of that. You know, seek first to demonstrate understanding in order to be understood. I get my point across much quicker. I can get it into your brain if I know that the biggest obstacle to you hearing my case is you have to be heard out first. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so stupid that it's so true. But, you know, we'll progress faster by applying these ideas in business negotiations you know, we tell people we accelerate their deal-making ability. We save them massive amounts of time. And that, that's how. I mean, it's a counterintuitive approach. Right. Look, Chris, you said at the beginning, the devil is in the detail. And I really want people listening to this podcast to get detail from us about how they, from the minute they turn off this podcast and go and buy your book, Never Split the Difference, how from that moment they can be better negotiators what is the best way to do that should we role play do you want to explain to us the skills that are involved in negotiating how do you normally work this kind of thing well let the other side go first and that's really hard to do because everybody wants to have their say one of the things about negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way how do you do that you gotta let them talk so um Let's say you have a promotional event of mine. You want to do a promotional event with me. You, you, got, you got a whole game plan laid out. And um, you're a typical negotiator. You're worried about your budget. You're worried about the details. You want to be in control. Um, how would you start that? How would you normally start that? If you wanted to contact me about it, make the deal. I would call you and I'd say, hey, Chris, uh, my name's Jake. I'm based in the UK. I hear you've got a new book out, Never Split the Difference. I, I run a events agency in the UK and I would love the opportunity to share your story with people um, across the pond. How do you fancy that? Sounds like you had something specific in mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, I want to do a book tour around the UK. Um, and I reckon we can sell out theatres. Um, and I've got some great contacts in the TV industry. So I reckon I can get you on to um, BBC Breakfast and Good Morning Britain. They're the two big early morning programmes over here. Um, what do you think? All right, so I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to talk about what just happened. Yeah. Before you contacted me, whether you actually wrote it down or you're aware of it, you have an entire vision in your head. V vision drives decision. Now, there, there are a lot of times in negotiations where people are actually just contacting someone to get a competing bid, or they're looking to do due, due diligence. Like, let's say you want to do this whole book tour thing, but you want to do it with an equivalent author. There's somebody else with a business book out there. And you're dry running with me to see what I might be looking for. Which means the vision in your head does not include me. So my first saying sounds like you've got something in mind. It doesn't, I didn't say, what do you have in mind? Because there's a, any question 
puts people on guard to some degree. Now, what do you have in mind is a good, what we would refer to as a calibrated question. A lot of other people would call either an open-ended question or a reporter's question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Reporter's interrogative. I ask that question if I want you to stop and think. It triggers what Danny Kahneman would refer to as in-depth, slow thinking. If in that moment I want you to stop and think and take a step back, I'll ask you what question. If instead I want to trigger a straight stream of consciousness, seems like sounds like you had something in mind, hits your brain in a completely different way. And it's much more likely to open up a direct downstream, unvarnished stream of consciousness of your thoughts. Now, there's no guarantee of success of any approach. I just want to use the stuff that's most likely to get the thinking out of you without exhausting you. I want you to give me a downstream that you're comfortable with, which simultaneously makes it me feel to you like I'm easy to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were kind of praising me when you said to me, seems like you've got uh, something. In, I, I almost felt I had to tell you something because I almost felt like you'd or, you were already impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all this additional emotional intelligence relationship building benefits that kind of come with this approach entirely. So can I flip it slightly because I'm intrigued by this approach. I want to go back to the angle Jake was talking about, but in relation to your days as a FBI negotiator, what would you do if somebody refused to play ball with you? So if somebody just refused to engage? Well, you know, that's part of the assessment of the process. Now, we'd probably start what we consider to be one-way dialogue because you refusing to answer back doesn't mean you're not listening. So if you're refusing to answer me back, what does that mean? What that means is you're scared. Your guard is up. You don't know if you could trust me. The future looks extremely uncertain to you. You're frozen. So that informs me as to now I'm going to start taking educated guesses. You know, each one of these things sounds like is a label. Looks like, feels like. Those are, those are educated guesses. You know, we, we have a scientific term for them. We call them swags. That's a scientific wild-ass guess. I'm going to take a scientific <laughs> wild-ass guess on what you're feeling. So I'm negotiating. We got a uh, 27th floor of a high-rise in, a, in, a, in Harlem, in New York, in, a, in the 90s. We have brought the circus to town. We got the SWAT team. We got up 27 floors in this high rise. I mean, the circus has come to town. We've made so much noise getting up there. We figure there's no way that these guys are not long gone because we brought the circus. We got elephants. We got trapeze artists. I mean, we make that much noise bringing an entire SWAT team and everybody to bear on this apartment. So I think we're talking to an empty apartment. I get two baby negotiators with me. They're still in training. I'm like, cool. This is rite of passage. Everybody talks to an empty apartment at some point in time. In point of fact, the fugitives are inside and they're heavily armed. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. 
and I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Because I said vision drives decision, right? I got to start putting a vision in their head of them coming out safely. So we're, we're talking to this empty apartment. I'm thoroughly convinced it's empty for six hours. Six hours of this over and over and over. And six hours in, a sniper on an adjacent building says, I just saw a curtain move inside. And we, and we all go like, holy cow, they really are in there. And so then I go, look, you know, we just saw the curtains move on the inside. One of you just looked out the window. I've been telling you for six hours, we're not going away. And that you're going to come out safe. And about five minutes later, without saying a word, the door opens and a pair of hands comes out exactly as I've described. I said, you have to come out with your hands first so that we can see that they're empty so we don't hurt you. And you've got to move really slow because we've got to keep you safe. We brought all three, out, all three of them out one at a time exactly like that. They never said a word. When, when we got outside, the first one to come out was a female. And I went to talk to her. I'm like, I've been talking for six hours. Why don't you say something? And she says, well, we were hoping you would go away. And I said, well, if you were hoping we, were go, we would go away, why'd you come out? She said, well, you said you'd never go away. So we finally believed you and decided to come out. What? Unbelievable. You know what I think so? I mean, for a start, I just, I don't know why, but I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that I'm hearing exactly what bad people in the States have heard at the sort of peak of their of their careers, if you know what I mean. Like, you're the voice that these huge fugitives in the, in the United States have been listening to, and we're now on the other end of it. But what what sort of gets me is, um, so I used to work in Formula One as a, as a broadcaster, and um, uh-huh. in motor racing, they call Formula One the Piranha Club, because everyone is out to get everyone else and eat each other up. But as you walk up and down the pit lane or the paddock, everyone's saying, oh, he robbed me, and he, she robbed me, and I stole from him. And that's kind of the way that world likes to operate. But what you've just explained is you can have a successful negotiation by not disarming someone, not being aggressive towards someone, by putting them totally at ease. And I've always kind of had the thought that to be a good negotiator, you need to get them on the back foot, knock them on their knees and slap them on the back of the head and leave them feeling like they've got nowhere to go. But you've just described the total opposite. It's successful. Yeah, yeah, because long term, it's much more profitable. I mean, they're, they're quiet negotiators, get farther, accumulate more money, are happier. There, you know, there's the occasional poster child, you know, and, and the current poster child for negotiations in the United States is Donald Trump. I was, I was in New York in the, in the 80s and the 90s when he was there. He was making it as a real estate developer. We have a number of mutual friends. Um, I... He hosted, graciously hosted, a fundraiser for a charity that I was the head of in his apartment at Trump Tower. It was a very gracious and wonderful thing for him to do. We mutual acquaintance set it up. He hasn't had, he started out in New York. He, he redid Grand Central Station, spectacular success. He did the Woman skate, Skating Rink that the city hadn't been able to fix for years. He finally got sick of walking by it. 
seeing seeing how ugly it was on on his own. Paid paid to fix it. He just got disgusted at the city's ineptitude. Went and built Trump the original Trump Tower. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Then built another building, but then kind of stopped putting up buildings in New York. And then he went to Atlantic City and had had a spectacular success there. But then you know, sort of ran out of gas in Atlantic City, you know, and and an aggressive negotiator wears out their counterparts. Now, the monuments to their success remain, but the monuments are built farther and farther apart in time. And since the monuments to their success remain, people forget how long ago they were built. And the victories are fewer and fewer in between. And people just get tired of getting beat up and they just they just stop coming to the table. They don't want if coming to the table means arguing, they don't come to the table. So would you argue would you argue then, Chris, that negative emotions such as negotiating through fear or intimidation or telling people about your power or status and things like that are short term fixes, but actually over a long term they're uh, they're destructive? thousand percent and one of the things that's almost misleading about that is you know academic studies on negotiation um what you're talking about is referred to in academic terms as strategic umbrage you know do i get mad to get the deal and there's an academic study uh, there's probably several out there that say that strategic umbrage works Anytime you find out about any study, take a look about how they gathered it and whether or not you like how they did the data. You know, you, you don't got to be a college graduate to look at it and say, this doesn't look right to me. So the academic studies on strategic umbrage are, were simulations that were run with students. I ran simulations with students myself. What happens when you run a simulation with a student? They sit down and they think two things. I got to get this done in 45 minutes. Because I want to go drink it with my buddies tonight, or I want to go get coffee, or I got to study something else. But they tend to allocate 45 minutes. They also feel the only way they fail is if they don't get a deal. And since it's a simulation, this is a one and done, and it's not an ongoing relationship. So they're within 10 minutes, you know, of, they've been there 40 minutes, they've been there 45. And finally, one of them decides to get angry with the other one. And the other one's like, all right, the hell with it. And they, and they cut the deal. And that data will show that the anger got the deal. But they're never going to deal with each other again. And it was a fake simulation. And they don't have to pay for that anger. And there isn't anybody in our life we don't have repeat relationships with. You go out and buy a car. And you slaughter the, the dealer over the car price. If the car's a lemon, you go back to that dealer and they're not going to want to fix it. If the car is good and you go back to that dealer for routine maintenance, they're going to remember that you killed them before and they're not cutting you a break on anything. There's no such thing as a one-off. I mean, you know, one, anybody listening to this, they're going to say, yeah, well, I can remember this one time I had a one-off. All right. Yeah. Compared to all the other times. So interesting. So why do... So why do we get caught up in this idea then, apart from the studies and the sort of unlike the false dichotomy that they that they promote? Why do we like why do we get convinced that this idea that negative emotions are more uh, are more valuable 
than positive emotions and Chris? And what can you teach us uh, that challenge those perceptions? Well, it's, it's what gets held up to us all the time. Like before my book came out and people just knew that I taught negotiation. I was a hostage negotiator. I taught negotiations in business school. And I would go to, you know, business events or any sort of professional gathering. And they say, hey, it's Chris Foss. He was a hostage negotiator. He teaches business negotiation at Georgetown. And every time somebody would speak up and go like, you know what? Let me tell you about this deal I negotiated. You know, I had them over a barrel. You know, they had nowhere to go. I had all the leverage. Now, if you're in a gathering, the only person that speaks up is the person that, that hammered somebody. You see over and over, wow, I guess if I want to have a deal that I brag about, you know, show off to the boys, you know, prove to my brother-in-law how smart I am. I got to go out and I got to beat somebody down. And then I'm going to brag about it for the rest of the time. So our, I'm afraid our examples in real life and in movies and the TV are always of somebody smashing somebody else. That Those are the models that are held up to us. So let's go back to the role play then. Um, you've already said to me, it seems like I have a plan. What's the next right. thing that you would normally do with someone? Well, um, first of all, uh, I'm going to listen to your game plan. So if I get an idea of whether or not, have you ever done this before? Or do you have any sort of a sense for the environment? Like, what, what, you know, what are the challenges? I'm, I'm probably going to say, you know, how, how'd this go when you tried it in the past? What happened? What sort of obstacles you run into? I'm really more interested in whether or not you have any idea of what you're getting into and how collaborative you're going to be. Because even if you cut me a great deal financially, if you're, um, if dealing with you is painful, if it sucks the life out of me, if we're just not a good match, um, it's going to be blood money and I'm not going to want it. E even so, if it's lucrative, it's just going to be too painful. And I'm not, and I want deals that I want to repeat. So now I'm starting to gather an idea of what our relationship's going to look like. Can I ask you a question at all? And have you answer or do you just, do you just want to dismiss me? You know, how you do anything is how you do everything. That's going to be the way you are to deal with the entire duration of the relationship. And I want to know what I'm getting into with you as a business partner, because I'm into long-term prosperous relationships, positive sum games. And if you are not, then even if you throw a lot of money on the table, it's still going to be painful. 